my wife and I have had the privilege to live in several different areas of the country and um, enjoyed some different traditions in some of those areas. If any of you are Norwegian, there is a tradition that we had a chance to participate in when we were in Alaska, and I will pronounce it the way it was pronounced to me in Alaska, even though when you search this on Google, it will pronounce it differently, but it was called Julebucking, which if you're from a Norwegian background, you've perhaps heard of Julebucking. Um, maybe the folks in Alaska that, that we knew and loved pronounced it differently, but um, we lived in this small town that had a very heavy Norwegian population, and on the day of Christmas Eve, most of the businesses took part in this tradition, which was um, putting food out by, by letting their businesses be open and encouraging you to come in and put on these glorious spreads of food so that the townspeople could walk down the main street, down Nordic Drive, and just help themselves at um, business after business, whether it was a bank or a grocery store or a clothing shop or whatever. Um, and if it was snowing, th this little town of Petersburg looked like something right out of a Norman Rockwell photo. It was just uh, had that sort of feel to it as people gathered together and um, just enjoyed the food and the fellowship. One of the banks would have a whole deli spread with rolls and meats and cheeses. Another one would have uh, local delicacies. And one of the stores would have fudge and eggnog and hot chocolate and all of those good things. The highlight was the drugstore that had hot pastrami sandwiches. And that would be like mid to late afternoon, and the line would go all the way through the drugstore and out onto the street just to get your pastrami sandwich. My kids were little then, um, but it, was, it just became such a, a neat tradition for us because it was free food and good food and lots of food. And, and we would just go out and sort of make the loop around the town and go to all of these different places. And we were full long before we ever got to the drugstore, but that didn't matter. You continued to eat, even knowing full well that it was Christmas Eve and there was going to be a meal at home that night. There was just something about participating in, in all of that good free food. My kids had a rude awakening when we moved to Southern California, and it was Christmas Eve day, and they were like, the stores don't have food for free. You, you can't just help yourself somewhere. And it's a, it's a reality that once we sort of get acquainted with that, we, we kind of expected it. We sort of looked forward to that, but in a way of expectation. If you open your Bible to John chapter 6, one of the things we're going to see here is that even 2,000 years ago, people liked a free lunch. They liked the idea of being able to have somebody provide food for them in some way, and, and they began to expect it. We read last week of this miracle that Jesus performs of the feeding of at least 10,000 or so people, described as 5,000 men in the passage, and then women and children, and, and Jesus performs this miracle, and the people eat their fill. They are satisfied, at least at that moment, to the degree that they think this is pretty impressive, and Jesus should be their king, that if he's able to do this, then he could do even more for them. And so Jesus resists that effort to sort of um, make him king, make him their leader at the moment. He sends his disciples, they go down to the Sea of Galilee, he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and he retreats back away from the sea and from the crowds and goes to the hillside to pray. We also read then of the miracle that followed that. As the disciples are out on the sea, a storm kicks up, and Jesus walks out to them on the water, and he brings them to land safely. What follows now in chapter 6 is the next day, and it is a fascinating dialogue between a crowd of people, many of whom had seen what took place on that first day, who sought out Jesus to try to find him again because of what they had seen and, and the benefit they had gotten from him. 
and they are beginning to have a back and forth with Jesus. And so we're going to see them ask questions and make statements, and Jesus respond to them. That's the whole discourse here is just this back and forth with members of the crowd. And what becomes evident in all of Jesus' responses are just how wrong the crowd is. Its assertions, its questions, its motives are just time and time again shown to be wrong. They don't get it. And so seven of these back and forths we're going to look at this morning where they say something and then Jesus gives a correction. And at the heart of it, as we walk through this this morning, I hope that what you will see is he is, Jesus is challenging us to pursue things that matter for eternity against the backdrop of a people who are primarily focused on that which is temporal, that which is a meal, that which they can get from Jesus, Jesus will continue to try to focus them in on life, on eternal life. And so chapter 6, if you pick up with me, we'll just read the first few verses, in, uh, starting in verse 22. John 6, 22, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Let me stop there. This is the first interaction of the crowd, and, and, and we'll put this first one under the heading of they have the wrong goal at this point. They, they have set out with the wrong goal. This crowd is eager for Jesus. Verse 24 makes it clear that they've, they've kind of put things together and said, we know Jesus didn't get in the boat, but there was only one boat, and the disciples went in that, and yet Jesus is not here, so somehow he's gotten across to somewhere else, and they are seeking him, it says in verse 24. They are in the pursuit of Jesus. But it's the goal that they have in mind that Jesus sees through. Look at verse 26. They've just asked, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." Remember, their question is, how, how did you get here? When did you get here? We only saw the one boat, and we're just trying to piece this together. Jesus completely ignores the question and goes right to the heart of, I know that you're pursuing me, and I know why you're pursuing me, and it's for the wrong reason. You're pursuing me because you got fed yesterday, and you're thinking that by following me, there's more to come. And I know that you were satisfied then, but you're hungry now. And, and Jesus is beginning here to say he has come to offer them the most enduring, wonderful gift that anyone could give, and yet they are just consumed with the idea of, is he going to provide us more food today? This is the guy who fed the crowd, and everyone was satisfied, and so let's go find him again. And Jesus is rebuking them for that. You were satisfied, now you're hungry again, and I know what you want. In verse 27, he says to them, what you should be desiring is eternal life. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. 
Watch as we walk through this passage how many times Jesus will refer to life or eternal life in each of those contexts pointing to that which carries on after death, talking about eternal life, trying to get them to see that there is far more than just this bread that they are so concerned about. How is he going to feed them? What's he going to provide for them? And Jesus Christ is is saying to them, you're not getting it. You're putting all of your energy into food that perishes when I have come to satisfy the deepest yearning of your soul. Your soul is longing for meaning in life and for purpose and for hope and for life after this life when death comes. And, And all you're coming here thinking about is, will we get more bread? What will he feed us today? So verse 28 Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Stop there. So here he's said to them, rebuke them, and they've largely ignored him, but they demonstrate here sort of the wrong method in how they think that they should approach Jesus. They ignore what he says, and they key in on the word work. He said there in verse 27, don't work, don't don't wear yourself out for food that perishes, but rather for the food that endures to eternal life. They've missed the the part about eternal life. That that should be the part that should grab their attention, and they should be saying, tell us more about eternal life and and how you would bring eternal life to us. But instead, the crowd says, okay, so you have something to offer here, and you must want us to work for it, because you're saying don't work for that, but rather work for this. So we get it. So what do you want us to do? There's some kind of trade-off here. What do we have to do? And that's what they ask then in verse 28. What what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here again, the crowd is wrong. The crowd is saying, works, plural. What what works should we be doing? What what is it that you're asking us to perform? Um, Jesus says, no, it's, it's not that. The work is a work of God, and and all that you are required to do is respond in faith. It's not that you bring this collection of works, but rather that you respond to the finished work of God by virtue of faith. It's that simple. To come in faith is to come with hands empty. To come in faith is to believe that that you have nothing to bring, that you have no resume, that you have no list of, of accomplishments that you've done in order to try to impress God. Every world religion outside of biblical Christianity has some element of works in it, some, some belief that at the core, pleasing a deity must mean performance, must in some way be good works outweighing bad works, doing enough stuff so that the deity is somehow happy when he judges. Imagine if you had company over for dinner and you had a delightful evening and at the end of the evening as the company is getting ready to leave, uh, they pull out their purse or their wallet and pull out a 10 and say, listen, this was a wonderful time and I know that food was expensive, just a little something here to help toward the cost of the food. You'd probably be a little annoyed at that, a little bothered by that and, and, and that's what this crowd is, is seemingly doing here. Okay, so you've, you've provided for us and we'd like more, but, but we get it. That you expect something from us, and so what works do you want us to do? And Jesus says, all of your works are, are, are wrong. You simply come based on the work of God, which is to rely in me in faith, believe in Jesus as Savior. So then verse 30, so 
they're starting now to grasp what he's saying. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Understand that we're in Galilee, so some of the things we've read previously about Jesus' encounters in Jerusalem were amongst Jews down there, and so some of the messianic claims that came before are, are just beginning to unfold for some of these people in Galilee. And so they are beginning as Jesus is speaking and saying, no, this isn't about your works, this is about believing in me that I have brought eternal life. So now there's this sense that, okay... So he's making some claims here about who he is, some messianic sort of claims, and some of the same things that the Jews had heard down in Jerusalem. So if he wants us to believe in him, then he must believe that he is sent from God. And so their response then is, well, prove it. Here's number three, the wrong demand. They start this sort of proving game by saying, okay, we're going to compare you with Moses because Moses is the one we historically look at as being sent from God as the deliverer of God's people, as the one who rescued them from out of slavery in Egypt. And if we look at what you've done and we look at what Moses has done, we're not so sure you stack up because, in fact, Moses took care of a nation for 40 years in the wilderness those people were fed manna, and in fact, the way they stated here is our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven, and they are comparing this now to Moses. This is, this is just a remarkable minimizing of what Jesus had done just the day before in feeding them, in providing this miraculous feeding. Now they're sort of turning that against him and saying, okay, well, that was good, but if you're going to make claims like this... Well, we've got Moses, and Moses has quite the record in terms of making sure that the Israelites were fed with manna. He's our hero, and he took care of the nation for decades. So verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Stop there. Again, Jesus, you'll see, focusing on life. His response, though, is blunt. So if what you're doing here in, in asking me to prove myself is you're going to now compare me to Moses and to the record of the Exodus and to how the people were fed from, by, by manna from heaven, he said, let me, let me at least clear up some of the confusion here first. Yes, Moses did as God directed and he obeyed God, but that manna was from heaven. It was God who provided that food. It wasn't Moses. Moses was the intercessor on your behalf, but Moses wasn't miraculously providing you a meal every day. That was my Father in heaven who provided that. And then, by the way, he points out here, you're still stuck on the perishable stuff. His, his point here in verse 33 is, first, this was bread from heaven was the manna, but my Father gives you true bread. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's, he's saying again, you're still stuck on the bread thing, on the substance that we eat. And I'm trying to point you to a bread that gives life. And he uses it again. This is, this is not what you are, are comparing it to at this point. So this isn't even comparable to manna. It isn't comparable to the bread that you were fed yesterday. This is something much more important because this bread gives life. In fact, if you jump down just a few verses, down to verse 49, 
he makes this distinction between the, the perishable bread and that which he is. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Robin and I were in Costco the other day, and, and we both sort of had the thought at the same time. We were thinking back to days when we had five kids in the house, and when a Costco trip was like a cart, you know, one of the big, you know, carts full of stuff, and, and we could go through that so easily. And you, thinking about bread, I mean, you'd do peanut butter and jelly at lunch, and you'd do some bread and butter for dinner, and that was a loaf. You know, it was gone, and the next morning it was like, Where's more bread for toast? And, and you start that process all over again because that bread is it's good and it serves a purpose, but it's gone. It, it only satisfies for so long because when we wake up in the morning, we're hungry again and we need more. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Yeah, the manna in the wilderness was miraculous but perishable. It satisfied but only for a time. It was limited in, in, in its scope and how long you could have it and use it, and it was limited in terms of satisfaction. You are still demanding the wrong thing. You're still caught up in this idea of, of bread and, and, and what I'm going to provide for you. So back up again now to verse 34, and here's, here's the response. When he, he has just got done saying, this is bread of life that gives life to the world, verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Still not getting it. At this point, there's a, there's a good sense in that, okay, so you're the source of this. There's an acknowledgement that Jesus must give it. But in their minds, this is still something that's maybe only a little better than manna. That, okay, so you've sort of defeated the manna idea. So the, the word I think that's so significant here is that word always. Whatever it is, however good this stuff is, and you've, you've built it up as being better than manna, then just keep giving it to us. We want it all the time. So you just provide it for us. Again, they have the entirely wrong expectation at this point. They're still thinking about food because their desire now is for Jesus to just continually feed them this new bread. Always give it to us. This is the point now that launches Jesus into the most familiar part of this discourse, the part that we're working on in terms of memorization. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. There's the, the, the key pivot point here. All of this stuff about bread, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. They are of this mindset of, Jesus, just keep feeding us this special bread. Just always give it to us, to which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the one you must look to. I am the one you must believe in. He says it as plain as he possibly can. This is, this is not about sustenance for the day. This is not about nourishment to get to the next meal. This is about receiving eternal, abundant life 
And I am that source, he says to them. I am that one that you must believe in. In fact, in verse 40, he, he changes sort of the metaphor from taking in and ingesting the bread of life to now verse 40 when he says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes, the, the, the picture being there, both present tense verb, whoever is continuing to look to Jesus, whoever is continuing to believe in Jesus, that is the one who has eternal life, the one who has placed trust in Jesus and, and just remains there looking to Jesus for hope and for life and believing that in him alone is eternal life. They wrongly ex expected some sort of substance here. What they needed was Jesus. So verse 41, now they're, now they're starting to get it. There, there's no free lunch here. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Some of what we saw in chapter 5 in Jerusalem, when it was sort of that eye-opening experience of, oh, wait a minute, he's claiming something here that's really unusual. He's claiming equality with God is now happening here in Galilee when they are listening to his words and now realizing that Jesus is claiming for himself to be sent from heaven, to being the Son of God. And so at this point, the mood of the crowd is turning. Because up until this point, they figured that they had Jesus on their terms. This guy comes to us, he feeds, he heals, he does some pretty cool things. He could end up being the guy who would deliver us from out of Roman rule. All of this is great. It's what we want. And now Jesus is saying to them, wrong. I come on my terms, and you must come to me on my terms because the Father has sent me. I am doing his will, therefore you must do that. You must believe on me. The question that, that might come to mind at this point, and this will get us to the next area in which they're wrong, is how are these people so blind? At some point we might ponder that when we think these are people who believed in a creator God, they understood basic principles from the Old Testament. They had rabbis to teach them about who God is. They had some sense of expectation of a coming Messiah, of some kind of deliverer of some sort. They've now seen Jesus in front of them, and he's been performing miracles, things that only God can do. And they've heard the records as well from, from travelers who have come up from Jerusalem and continue to affirm that what this guy does is remarkable. They've heard him teach and they've begun to hear a teacher who teaches like no one else they've heard before with just unparalleled authority in terms of the things that he claims. And, and, and yet, when he now puts himself forward to them on his terms, their response is, no way. You can't be the guy because we, we know who your parents are. We know you're from Nazareth. We know you're just like one of us. You're not from heaven. You're just, you're just like one of us. Which, which begs the question of, how could they not believe in light of all they knew, all they had seen, and all they had heard? And that's, I think, the explanation comes in number five, which is they had the wrong heart. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let me just read on and, and take some of what Jesus says here, and we'll also back up as well. But verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Pause there. Just think with me about a couple of verses here that we've already read this morning. One of them is verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then back up in verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those verses tell us a lot in terms of explaining how it is that this crowd seems so dumbfounded and now, in fact, angry that Jesus is claiming who he is, when, in fact, the Old Testament prophecies and the evidence before them seem so remarkably clear that this is the Messiah who has been sent from God. And ultimately, that, that verse 37 is really clear about this, that those who come to Jesus, those who look to Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, are those that God the Father has given to Jesus. There is a work of the Father here, just like we were singing about a few minutes ago, that, that is God's sovereign work. If you go a little further on down in this chapter, Jesus reaffirms this very point down in verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Not only is it true that the only ones coming to Jesus are the ones that the Father is giving to Jesus, but the other side of the coin is that no one comes to Jesus unless God the Father draws them to Jesus, unless God the Father acts in a sovereign and, and supernatural and gracious way. Uh, the, the fact that people could be taught truth, that, that they could witness the signs of Jesus firsthand, and yet still reject him flat out and say, nah, you can't be the one and walk away, it's evidence of what the Bible calls a heart of stone. It is the condition that all of us are born in. We are born in a state of sinful rebellion against God. We do not by nature embrace the things of God. We are born as people with a heart of stone that is resistant to who God is. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, people do not come to Christ because it seems a good idea to them. It never does seem a good idea to sinful people. It is our natural inclination to reject Jesus Christ as Savior. It is the inclination of this crowd, apart from God working and drawing them to Jesus, they are going to see all of these different things and still go, nah, there's some expl explanation for it. Nah, he can't be the one. They're still, still not going to embrace him. So this grumbling against Jesus and this rejection of Jesus, one of the reasons that he's making the point here, and it, it, it's particularly, I think, in part teaching his disciples is, as suddenly the crowd now begins to grumble and is about to make its own exodus from Jesus, part of the message here is this does not mean the mission has failed. If you're watching this scene, day one, the crowd says, make him king. He's amazing. Day two, they've come face to face with what Jesus is claiming, and they're all saying, no, we don't want any part of this, and they're all leaving in droves. What Jesus is saying in, the, in these statements about the Father drawing them and none coming unless the Father drawing is, this is not, this is not failure. 
This is man doing what man does quite naturally. It's what's spelled out in Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the indictment goes on from there. If you've read Romans 3, you know that. Sinful man, when left to his own doing with no intervention from God, remains on exactly the path that he was born on, which is a path of rebellion toward God and resistance towards the things of God. And apart from God's sovereign work, apart from something miraculous and gracious and supernatural, which as Jesus describes it here, the Father drawing them to me, which is essentially God taking that heart of stone and making it into what Scripture describes as a heart of flesh, a heart that now is changed and now sees the beauty of Christ and suddenly sees the very same things that Jesus has just done and hears the same things he has said and now says, Savior, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. It is because God is doing that. God must intervene through the Spirit to draw a person to Christ, and when he does, his work will bear fruit. So when Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to him unless the Father draws that person. That word for draw does not mean lure, entice, or invite. We, we might try to think of that in a more mild sense. It's a word that implies the use of force. It's a word that's used in the book of Acts to describe in Acts 8.3, Saul, Paul before he was a believer, when he was persecuting Christians, going from house to house and dragging men and women out and taking them to prison. Same Greek word. The idea there, a force that can be used for either good or for evil. What God does when he draws a person to Christ is he changes the heart. And therefore, the nature is now transformed. And that nature, which was, was free in the sense that it was going to do what that nature, sinful nature would do, it would reject Christ every single time. Now that nature is transformed, and it can do nothing but see the beauty and the wonder of who Christ is and embrace him as Savior. So this explains why informed, religious, Messiah-seeking people would still miss Jesus because they were spiritually dead. And the only way for them to truly see the light and embrace what Jesus Christ is saying to them is for God to draw them. And apart from that, they remain stubbornly rebellious. This is, for, for a lot of Christians, this is still difficult ground that we tread when we talk about the sovereignty of God. And let me just give you this, because what we, we also look at in this passage is verse 47, which says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And we see it simply there, as Jesus Christ stated, that anybody who comes to Jesus is saved, and that is absolutely true. Here's, here's my encouragement to you. Don't take the truth of the sovereignty of God, which is no one comes to the Father, and no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Don't take that and whoever believes has eternal life and try to pit them against each other because the Bible doesn't pit them against each other. Scripture holds out both to be true, demonstrating that God is sovereign and man is responsible to respond in faith. And Scripture tells us to hold that tension, to allow them because both remain in God's will. Apart from God's gracious, sovereign work, a person will remain in rebellion. And yet, a person who responds in faith is saved. Those two stand together. The, the key, I think, for us is that we are not privy to the, 
the, the, the sovereign decree of God in terms of it, it, it's foolish for us to even think that we have a sense for who God is drawing and, and how he's drawing them. We are responsible to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus does to a crowd that largely will reject him, he is still proclaiming truth and trusting that it is ultimately the Father who will draw people to believe in him as Savior. If all it took was intelligent reasoning and emotional persuasion to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ, then, then these kinds of things that we see here in John chapter 6 should not be happening. Because here is the Son of God from heaven speaking the truth, proclaiming the gospel, saying, come to me for eternal life. Can you get anything more persuasive than the Son of God saying, come to me for eternal life? And yet the crowd just says, no, no, we don't, we don't buy that. We don't think so. And it just, it's, it's just Jesus' way of reminding his disciples that there is a sovereign work of God that is a part of this too, and God must change their hearts for them to come in faith. Pick up with me then in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? All right, here we are, back again to the pattern. Jesus says something profound to them. They don't get it at all, and in fact, they take the worst possible interpretation of it, almost a nonsensical interpretation of what Jesus Christ says, showing a completely wrong understanding. I am the bread. Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And here the Jews now are, the crowd is standing there, and in their spiritual deadness, what they hear sounds completely bizarre, and they begin disputing amongst themselves. They're arguing amongst themselves. This is almost like... The, the picture of Old Testament Israel as, the, as God has called them to go into the promised land and the spies have come back and two have said, go ahead and, and we should go ahead and take it because this is what God has said and ten have said no and, and they're all disputing amongst each other. What should we do? You should do what God has, has ordained, what God has called you to do. And here is Jesus saying, take me as the bread of life and here's the crowd going, oh, we don't get this. This, this. this sounds like absurd foolishness to us. And so verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he talked at Capernaum. No one should ever accuse Jesus of watering down his message when the crowd is sort of angry and confused. And so he says, okay, let me try it this way. Jesus just doubles down on them and says, see what I just called you to do? Let me say it in an even, even more severe way, if you will, that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Here's this crowd that has just said, oh, this is, this is horrible. And Jesus starts it off by saying, truly, truly, you need to pay attention. And now he completely baffles them. Now we fully understand why a spiritually dead crowd's response to this will be, we're out of here. 
He's using a metaphor that I think works in two directions, in two parallel directions. It's a metaphor that is moving toward the Christ and is about abiding in Christ. Uh, toward the cross, I should say, and abiding in Christ. He's pointing them in two directions, and they are seeing neither at this point. He has made it unmistakably clear that he is the object of faith. You must embrace me in the, the fullest way possible. You must take me in. And by introducing blood, as he does here, he is now pointing to his death. Throughout Scripture, when we see that reference to blood, more often than not, it is a reminder of blood that is being shed, of death. You could go all the way back to the first reference to blood, which is Abel. When Cain kills Abel, you go on into the Passover um, account and the Passover lamb and the blood that is used as, as the protection for the people in that household. And all throughout Scripture, blood is used again and again to picture death. And the call to faith by here in Jesus in John 6 is ultimately calling them to the ultimate object of that faith, which is his death on the cross, which is his suffering, the giving up of his flesh and his blood in their place. One view of this passage says that Jesus was introducing the Lord's Supper here, eating the bread, symbolizing his body, drinking the cup, the, the, the blood. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church um, uses a lot of this passage for the notion of transubstantiation, that the bread becomes the body and the, blood becomes the, the, the cup becomes the blood at that point. Um, that is not the primary point. And, and we know that because we understand the primary point of the Gospel of John is to evangelize. It is to say that this is the Christ. Believe on him. It's not teaching at this point about the Lord's Supper or, or bringing that into a conversation with lost pagans and saying, here, you just need to know what the Lord's Supper is because that's not what's going to save them. It's not saying you eat the bread and drink the cup and by participating in communion, it will save you. D.A. Carson writes, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. Jesus is looking ahead to the cross. This is just beginning to, to, to point them in the direction of what faith in him looks like. It is ultimately putting faith in his finished work, in his sacrifice for them. But there is also clearly here a picture of what it means then to abide in Christ. Not only to come to him in faith, but to continue to have fellowship with him and be nourished by him. Those metaphors of eating and drinking are the idea of, of depth of commitment, the, the, the reality of the closeness that we have with Jesus Christ. We're not called to merely nibble at spiritual truths. We are called to believe and to understand that we are sustained by Jesus. He is our life and our hope. Leon Morris puts it, people must take Christ into their innermost being if they would have the life he died to bring them. Jesus will draw this out much further in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, the the, the story that he tells there involving the vine and the branches. But this is clearly in John 6, seeking to give to us a picture of our union with Christ. We receive nourishment and strength by taking Jesus further into our lives. So by reading God's word, by reading scripture, by calling out to Jesus in prayer, by fellowshipping together with a local body of believers and having communion with the saints, uh, by taking part in, in the communion service and remembering what happened on the cross, by being people who are open to repent of sin and, and to continue to enjoy the beauty of forgiveness. Uh, by knowing that, if we drift from fellowship with Christ, either by just negligence or by our own rebellion, 
we are moving away from the source of our life and strength. And so the, the call in all of that, time in the word, time in fellowship with brothers and sisters, time in prayer, meditating on Christ, thinking on these truths, all of that is just the, 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 the practical application of feeding on Christ, on knowing that our sustenance for life must come from him. And so here's the end, the, the response. When many, verse 60, of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, disciples being in a general sense here, all of these followers were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And of course, after this, many of them turned back, it says, and no longer walked with him. We see the wrong response in the very end. When they, the more they began to understand the truth of what it meant to put faith in Christ and to follow him, the more they said, this is not what we want. We, this, is, this is the wrong deal here. And in fact, that, that statement in verse 60 is remarkable that they say, this is too hard. That's their judgment. He's not proving to be the Messiah that we, we sort of imagined in our minds. We had, a, we had a job description for the Messiah. Come and do good things for us. Come and free us. And, and, and this, this, what he's giving here, doesn't fit that job description at all. Let me just finish here with, with reminding you of this. Ten times in this discourse, Jesus has used the word life. What more could anyone want than life? After all, that's, that's, as, as John writes, the, the purpose of the gospel, these things are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life. So the, the whole purpose, John, John understands, empty, needy souls need life. They need Christ. And Jesus has been holding out life. And here is a crowd that hears Jesus offering eternal life and goes, eh, that's not what we're here for. We've got other things in mind for you. Eternal life wasn't even on their radar. They were far more interested in seeing if they could get another meal. Maybe he could heal some diseases, fix some things, get us out into the Romans, do some stuff for us, make it better here and now. And that's what they were settling for. You talk about wrong goals and expectations. You were standing before the king of the universe who can grant you eternity. And you stand before the king of the universe and go, can I get another meal? You got any more of that bread? You got some really special bread that you can feed me? Listen, it, it's easy to look at this passage and say, man, these people were wrong. We just picked out seven ways they were wrong. Here's the question for, for you and for me. How often are you consumed with the here and now? How much of life gets driven by the temporary, perishable stuff to the degree that you're not even enjoying the abundant, eternal life that Christ has intended for us? Are there areas of life where your priorities and your goals are upside down? Have you fallen into that trap of being consumed with here and now? And, and consequently, the, the way to know if you're there is if you become bitter or, or sorely disappointed because God hasn't given you that one thing that you know would make you happy. God just hasn't done that one thing that, boy, that would just make me so content 
if he would just do that. We're not walking away. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're not walking away from him in rejection. But how often do we grumble about our circumstances? Do we say, he doesn't seem to care about me in this moment because he's not doing what I want right here, right now. Instead of taking the long view that sees that momentary affliction as something that he is sovereignly doing for our good and for his glory, how often do we get stuck on those things and dwell on those things and grumble about those things because we want them fixed now? Many in this crowd, if they continue down this path, are headed for an eternity in hell, convinced that the one thing they needed from Jesus was a meal. Just feed us something. We don't want all the rest of this stuff. And Jesus knew better, as he does for you and I. Will we find that satisfaction? Will we trust that even in the difficult times when we think we know better what we should get than Jesus does, will we trust in those moments and say, okay, there's something in this affliction that is that, that you're nourishing me and you're feeding me and I will still find my sustenance in you. I will still rest in you and not get caught up in the temporary and the perishable. I think it's a good challenge for you and I. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I would urge you that there is an eternity that lies before us and you will stand before your creator. And he is the judge over all of mankind. And he will call you to account, as he will every one of us, as sinners, as people who have broken his law. And your only hope will be putting full trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross to take your place and to take your punishment for sin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for teaching us again that ultimately it is life that you are the giver of. We, we breathe, we are here, we are singing and thinking and worshiping because you have breathed the breath of life into us, and we thank you for that. Not only are you the giver of life, but you are the one who then gives life that is beyond just the physical existence that we have. Lord, thank you for drawing us again through the words of Jesus Christ, to see again just what a gift eternal life is, what a treasure it is. Cause us as we sing now to rejoice in the sweet gift of eternal life. Help us, Father, when we are tempted to be distracted by the, the moments and the afflictions and the trials of everyday life, when we seem to think somehow they're more important than what you're doing through them, or how Jesus is providing for us, and we're tempted to be distracted by them. Cause us to, to remember again this crowd just missing the opportunity of such sweet blessing from Jesus because they wanted their circumstances just the way they wanted them. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that this would be the day when you would open their eyes and you would draw them to the wonder and beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Might you this day bring souls to, to see Jesus as the glorious Savior, as the bread of life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.